Please bow your heads one more time as we go to the Lord together in prayer to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are the God who raised Jesus from the dead. You have all power and all authority. You are good and wise and kind and righteous. And Jesus is risen bodily and reigning at your right hand. And you have given it to him to have life in himself and to give life to whomever he pleases. And so we pray now that in connection with the preaching of your word, Lord Jesus, would you give life? It is your prerogative. We want people to have it. Give eternal life, even this morning, as we feast on your word. You've told us in your word that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So speak it to us now. Feed us from the word of Christ. Your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. What do you do in your mind with the miracles of Jesus in the Bible? We're about to study one of Jesus' biggest miracles, arguably the biggest one Prior to his own resurrection, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11, 1 through 44. So what significance can such a thing have for you? What does this matter to you? If you think like many modern people, then your default assumption is that miracles simply do not happen, period. And therefore, they cannot happen. And so they must not have happened here. But if so, then it may be that your assumptions predetermine the conclusion. Of course, the same might be said for those who assume God exists and that his son is Jesus. Weighing all the evidence, then, is not really what's at issue because none of us can give rock-solid evidence for every single one of the assumptions that we use to come to every single one of the conclusions that we draw. But what if God really was in Jesus when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead? What if that assumption actually has more power to explain how Lazarus was raised from the grave than anything else that we might think was going on in this text and the event that it relates. If biblical miracles are no more than myths, then they cannot create a real theology for you any more than watching Star Wars can create a real theology for you. Then again, maybe that's what we hope to get out of our unbelief in the first place. That since the Bible is a myth since perhaps I as an unbeliever have concluded that the Bible is a myth 
It has no power or authority to explain to me who God is and what he expects of me, and therefore I can just make it all up for myself. Because after all, the Bible is just a myth. Much of this is the argument of Alan J. Torrance, a theology professor at the University of St. Andrews. One of his main points was that you can't really assign theological significance to a historical text like this if God was not actually at work in the event that the text is relating, Lazarus' resurrection. If God didn't do this really, literally, physically, what are we doing here? So just to be clear, if you're an unbeliever listening to this, John, the gospel writer, and Jesus himself both want you this morning to suspend your unbelief. I want you to suspend your unbelief. Not temporarily, not just while you're listening to the sermon. I want you to suspend your unbelief for good. I want you to quit your unbelief. Jesus wants you to quit not believing that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Quit not believing that. And trust that Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead because if you believe that, then you should believe what the resurrection of Lazarus ultimately points to. That God raised Jesus from the dead, not just to a new lease on this life like Lazarus, but to the right hand of God in power and glory, where he now holds the keys to death and the grave. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us in its entirety, John 11, 1 to 44, to let the text speak to us for itself. Then we'll try to answer a few questions and explain a few things, and we'll draw a few applications by the time our time's over. John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loves it, loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. One of the unique things about this miracle is that John gives us personal names if you'll remember back to John 2, the head waiter at the wedding in Cana was not named, nor was the official whose son was raised in chapter 4, nor was the paralytical at the pool named in chapter 5, or any of the 5,000 he fed in chapter 6. The man born blind in chapter 9 was not even named. But here we get a name, three names actually, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. 
So why the names here? Well, Jesus was especially close to this family. He loved them. But Richard Baucom, New Testament scholar, has argued that when you get names like this in miracle stories, it's probably, at least in part, because these people were members of the early churches, and they were eyewitnesses who saw and then retold these stories. So John may not have witnessed this particular miracle himself, but Mary and Martha sure did, and Lazarus experienced it. So these names are like John footnoting his eyewitness sources for this story and saying, see, it happened. It happened. You know these people. For John, the miracle is the final and most impressive of all Jesus did in his earthly ministry prior to his own resurrection. This is the crowning miracle that Jesus did for other people in his earthly ministry. He, John shows seven miracles, water to wine, the official son, the paralytic at the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the man born blind, and now Lazarus is the seventh. But if this resurrection is so great, if this resurrection is real, and it's such a big deal, then why didn't Matthew, Mark, or Luke record it in their Gospels? Why is John the only one to include this really big one? That question has sometimes been raised by unbelieving scholars to cast doubt on whether this miracle really happened at all. Probably the best response is that the other three Gospels were written and distributed while Lazarus was still alive while he was a hunted and wanted man, as we will see at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. They were written in the 40s to 60s A.D., Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, we'll learn in chapter 12, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Lazarus after Jesus brought him back to life because Lazarus, back from the dead, had become a tourist attraction for the crowds. I mean, can you imagine if Lazarus were still alive today? I think we would all take a church trip to the Holy Land. Let's go see Lazarus. That'd be a big deal. And worse, people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. And that's bad news to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and for their authority and for their hold on the crowds and their loyalty. So even if Mark tried to tell Lazarus' story without mentioning Lazarus' name, Lazarus' story has been such big news that everybody would have known exactly who he was talking about. The whole family at Bethany would have been exposed. It was only a couple miles from Jerusalem itself. By contrast, John didn't write until the 80s or 90s A.D., late enough that the danger had passed, either because the excitement died down or leadership had changed or the family at Bethany had all died by then. So just because the other Gospels don't include this doesn't mean that the best conclusion is that John made it up. Four times in the first four verses, John mentions Lazarus is ill or has an illness. It's emphatic. But is Jesus lying or mistaken when he says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death? And this is one of those verses that your unbelieving friends will point to and say, see, he was wrong because he was dead. After all, 
before he ever leaves, in verse 14, Jesus himself says, Lazarus is dead. The phrase is, this illness is not to or towards death. And it's contrasted with, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus doesn't mean Lazarus won't die from the illness. He clearly can't mean that, because he goes on to say, Lazarus is dead from the illness. He means, death isn't going to win this one. This one is not going into death's win column. But Jesus intentionally says it in a way that leaves uncertainty lingering in the minds of Lazarus' sisters. And he is inviting faith and hope in himself amid that uncertainty. So when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus to get him to come and heal Lazarus, Jesus sends word back, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That is not just a soliloquy that Jesus kind of stands off to the side and says to himself or to God in prayer. That is his response back to Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. He wants them to have hope in him and in the good purpose of God in this illness. And yet as readers, John is also, of course, priming the pump for us. Jesus is going to do something that will glorify both God and himself as God's son. But what we read next is puzzling. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and that's why he delayed two more days? He loved them, so when he heard, he stayed two days longer. Why did he delay? Because he loved them. And only then, after a couple of days, did he lead his disciples to go back to Bethany. But Bethany is in Judea, only two miles from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the Jews were just trying to stone him for blasphemy, demeaning God's name by calling himself one with the Father, saying, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the disciples are understandably nervous. Verse 8, we like it out here in the Jordan. This is safe. It's far enough away from Jerusalem and the people who want to kill Jesus. Why do you want to go back to where there's a price on your head. And the answer he gives in verses 9 and 10 feels kind of mysterious. But Jesus' point is that he's still in the work day of his life and ministry. The sun has not yet set. There's still daylight. There's still work to do. And as long as there's daylight, it's time to be working the works of God. In fact, as long as the daylight lasts, there's no reason to fear, no matter what other people are saying or doing or intending. We're not done yet. It's not dark yet. I'm going back. You won't stumble when you walk in the day. You stumble when you walk in the dark of night. It's still daytime in the earthly ministry of Jesus, so what's there to fear from going back, especially when Lazarus is waiting in the grave? So the risk-reward ratio for Jesus is still in his favor. But the confusion continues for everyone but Jesus in verse 11. He uses sleep as a pretty common metaphor for death. But his disciples take him literally and reply, well, if he's just sleeping, then he'll recover. And what's the use of risking our lives going back into the teeth of your opposition? Why court catastrophe 
by going back to the lion's den if you know Lazarus is going to be okay. So Jesus has to spell it out for him. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. So the delay was not just to wait until Lazarus died. After all, by the time he gets to the tomb, Lazarus had already been dead four days. Before he ever left on the trip, Jesus said Lazarus has died. It was only a one-day's journey to Bethany from where they had been at the end of chapter 10. And that means Lazarus has already been dead for at least a day, even before Jesus delayed for two days. Lazarus is dead, dead. He is really dead. He has been dead. So Jesus did not delay in order to wait for Lazarus to die. He delayed to elicit the disciples' faith in him for doing a more impressive miracle. This is for their faith, so that you may believe. I'm glad I wasn't there to save his life so that you will believe. There was something more important than saving Lazarus' life. It was that you will believe in Jesus. But what about a four-day stay in the grave would have encouraged their faith in that context? Why four days? Why not five or six or seven? Or just two or three? I mean, after he's dead, he's dead. Like, Well, the best common sense answer is that by day four, decomposition would have done significant damage. The best cultural answer is that according to Jewish tradition, at least, the soul stayed with the body three days after death, and on the fourth day, the soul left the body. That's not Christian teaching. That's not in Scripture. That was first century Jewish tradition. And if that was the assumption, then Jesus wanted to wait until all human and traditional hope would have been lost. I mean, it might be one thing for him to show up a few hours after the funeral, no decomposition, raise it from the dead. Might have been one thing to show up a few days later, decomposition, but hey, according to the Jews, soul's still in the body, there's still hope. Four days, there's nothing else you can do. Yet Thomas the twin is not so believing in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, it is not altogether clear who him is in Thomas's sentence. Whether Thomas means let us go die with Jesus because the Jews are going to get him if he comes that close to Jerusalem because they were already trying to stone him. Or let's go die with Lazarus. If he means Jesus, then he's saying, again, the Jews are going to stone Jesus as soon as they find out that he's only two miles away, and that'll be the end of us too. If he means Lazarus, which the grammar of the pronouns actually favors, then he's saying, if we go there while the Jews are out for Jesus' blood, we're as dead as Lazarus. We might as well have died four days ago. 
rather than go with Jesus back that close to Jerusalem under these circumstances. Either way, Thomas is loyal, but he is unbelieving. Jesus then is the only one who knows what he plans to do. Everybody else is clueless. In verse 17, he gets there to find Lazarus four days dead. Martha leaves the house to meet Jesus on his way, maybe because there are Jews from Jerusalem who came for the week-long wake. And if word got back to Jerusalem that he was there, that might be the beginning of the end for Jesus himself. And maybe Martha knew that. So Martha comes, says to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary, her sister, is going to say the same thing in verse 32. And so will some of the Jews in verse 37. Their point's going to be the same. He could have healed him. But Martha goes on to express faith in Jesus in verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And when Jesus hears that, he encourages her. Your brother will rise again. She takes that as an end-time resurrection of the dead in the last day, hope. I know, I know he's going to, I know eventually he will. Jesus means for her to believe more than that in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Hey, I'm here. Anything's possible today. Jesus means for her to believe that he is saying the same thing he said in chapter 5. As the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. I am the resurrection. I am the life. As long as you have Jesus, you have resurrection power over death and you have eternal life. Jesus is the personification of divine life. He is the presence of God's life. He is self-sustaining. He is eternal. Jesus is the way to be resurrected. And he shares his self-sustaining, regenerative, eternal life with whoever trusts in him. Which is what he goes on to say in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. That's, that one's for Lazarus, at least most immediately in the context. Though he die, though Lazarus die, Lazarus believed in me, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That one's for Martha and everybody else. Do you believe this? He asks her. Do you believe this? I don't know what tone of voice he used to say that. I would love to have been there what, to hear him say do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I don't know, I, I don't know how he would have said it to, to emphasize every single word of it, but I think he meant every single word emphatically to her. Do you believe this? He knows what he's getting ready to do. He wants her to trust him. And Martha's faith rises to the occasion. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That is as clear a profession of faith as we have gotten thus far from anybody in the whole book. And notice she articulates that faith in Jesus before the miracle, not just after. That is what Jesus wants from us. Faith in his future, all sufficiency for you and me. Precisely when all hope is four days dead. 
Martha here is the model of faith. Not Thomas, not any of the 12 disciples, Martha. I don't want to hear anybody saying the Bible is misogynist. Martha is the hero of this story. Martha is the faithful one. Martha is the only one who believes. She's the example. Verse 28, Jesus, she goes on to call her sister Mary privately. Again, probably privately because she doesn't want word of getting back to Jerusalem that Jesus is only two miles away. So Mary runs out to meet Jesus. So somebody probably came in, whispered in Mary's ear so that the other Jews couldn't hear where she was going. But the Jews follow her out the door thinking she's going to Lazarus' tomb to grieve there and we want to be with her. She falls at Jesus' feet to tell him through tears, if only you had been here. And when Jesus sees her and her Jewish friends grieving, he is deeply moved. But the word there is a troubling word. It's actually a word that means indignation. He's indignant. There's an anger to this emotion. He's not angry at Mary for her sorrow. He's not even angry at the Jews for horning in on a personal moment with friends. He's angry at the sinfulness of the world that causes the death and sorrow he's seeing. He's angry at death. Brought into the world by sin. And when he sees the tomb, Jesus enters Mary's sorrow. He cries. He cries hard. He weeps. Because he loves her and he loved Lazarus. Of course, the Jews standing around have a mixed reaction to Jesus' emotion. Some are impressed by how much he loved Lazarus, but others wonder, how in the world can he cry like this? After all, if he healed a man born blind, he could have healed Lazarus. What is going on? But there is more glory for Jesus in Lazarus' death than there would have been in Lazarus' healing. And that is what we are about to see. Jesus composes his sorrow, recovers his sternness towards sin and death in verse 38, and now he's ready to go to work. Take away the stone. That phrase anticipates the stone rolled away at his own tomb in chapter 20, verse 1. But now Martha cringes. This is going to stink. Literally. You don't want to do that, Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where, where, where are you going with this? But Jesus does not shrink back from the stink of death in verse 40. And here again, he invites faith in his own word and power in verse 40. Did I not tell you? <laughs> I don't know how he said that one either. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you? This whole episode is an invitation to faith in Jesus against all appearances and against all possibilities to the contrary. But before Jesus calls Lazarus, he calls on his own heavenly father. He thanks God for already having heard him in this instance and for always hearing him. But this is not for his own sake. He's praying for the benefit of everybody around him. And it's not even a request. You notice that? Jesus doesn't ask God for anything. 
He doesn't ask, God, would you, would you come through in the clutch? God, would you prove your power in me? Would you prove it to them? Would you? No, he just says, I thank you, Father, for hearing me. It actually echoes, I had to have this pointed out to me by a theologian, Psalm 118.21, I thank you that you have answered me. (laughs) Man, that is confidence. Before the miracle, I thank you that you have answered me, which is a response to a previous deliverance from death in that same psalm, Psalm 118.17, I shall not die but I shall live. If Jesus has Psalm 118 in mind, right before Lazarus' resurrection, guess who else's resurrection he has in mind right before Lazarus' resurrection? His own! His own. He's doing this as a taste, a foretaste of what he will do in rising from the dead. purpose of this miracle is to prove the Father is in Jesus, Jesus is in the Father, and God sent Jesus from outside the world into the world to give life to all those who will turn from their unbelief and trust in Jesus. That's why it's here today for you. That's why you came today to this church to hear that message. The purpose of this resurrection is to elicit our faith that God sent Jesus to bring dead sinners to life in Christ. Jesus wants people to honor the Father for this. You recognize this? I want them to know that they may believe that you sent me. Not that I am something in myself. You sent me. I want them to know you sent me. I want them to know I am one with you. I submit to you. I was sent by you. And he does this miracle, not with hocus pocus, not with sleight of hand. My my three-year-old has gotten into this little habit of taking something in his hand like this, and he will tell me, Daddy, blow on it. Blow on it. And then he puts it behind my ear in his hands, and he goes, where to go? And then he kind of puts it in his pocket. Oh, amazing. Jesus does this just by speaking it. Three simple words. There's not even any embellishment in the way it's told literarily. Like John doesn't even kind of dress it up. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Grave wrappings and all, simple as that. The point of that whole text, as long and drawn out as it is, is that God sent Jesus to give life to the dead through his own death and resurrection. Through his own death and resurrection. God sent Jesus to give life to the dead through his own death and resurrection. This whole text points beyond itself to Jesus' own death and resurrection. After all, this is not an end times resurrection to eternal life in a glorified body for Lazarus. Lazarus really was dead, but he only comes back to this life, not to the life to come. Lazarus doesn't accompany Jesus on the clouds into glory after Jesus' resurrection 
and ascension. And where Lazarus comes back still bound up in his grave clothes, needing Jesus to unbind him, Jesus rose, unbound himself, and folded his own grave clothes. That's intentional. You're supposed to look forward and be like, ah, I see what you did there, John. You only do that on your second or fourth or fifth or tenth reading, but eventually you're like, ah, man, grave clothes. I know where that's going. In fact, one theologian put a pretty fine point on it by saying, in effect, that if Jesus himself were not raised to his glorified body and ascended to heaven, then bringing Lazarus back from the dead to this life only, that's not really any hope at all. I mean, it's impressive, unprecedented, unique. But is it really hope if Jesus did that, but if he himself doesn't rise from the dead to eternal life as the firstborn of the new creation? Listen to Mary Marion May Thompson. The key to understanding John's written gospel is to comprehend what makes the promise of the gospel possible is Jesus' own resurrection and that the manifestation of God's life-giving power in it is the only warrant for believing that Jesus can keep the promises he makes to raise the dead to life at the last day. The only warrant for believing Jesus can raise you from the dead is that he himself rose from the dead. Not that he raised, Jesus, raised Lazarus from the dead, but that he himself raised, rose from the dead. Without that extra textual reality, the reality outside the text of the Bible of the resurrection of Jesus, the historical reality of the resurrection, without the resurrection of Jesus, the textual account of the raising of Lazarus offers no hope, but ultimately only despair or mockery in the face of the human condition. In other words, if Jesus is not raised, I'm done quoting her now, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then Lazarus rises from the dead only to say, well, here we go again. Right? I mean, honestly, what did, what did Lazarus rise to? He's a wanted man now. He's a dead man now to the Jews, just like he was a dead man in his illness. But for those who are rereading John's gospel or rehearing it, Tombside phrases like take away the stone or the reference to the face wrapping and the linen strips trigger anticipations of Jesus' own emergence from the tomb. Yet the narrative here points forward even more immediately to Jesus' death, not just to his resurrection. By going back to Judea to raise Lazarus, Jesus was walking right into the teeth of his own enemies. And while his 12 hours' work were not yet up, the final sign in John's gospel is the very thing that galvanizes Jesus' enemies to plot his judicial murder in the next chapter, even by the end of this one. We only have to skip ahead to verse 53 to read, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This last sign really was the beginning of the end of his public ministry. As A.T. Lincoln put it, life for, Jesus, for Lazarus will mean death for Jesus. So why did he do it? Why did he go back? Why did Jesus go back? Jesus put himself in harm's way because of his love. That application has a double meaning too. Here in John 11, Jesus puts himself in harm's way to raise Lazarus. He's going back into the enemy territory where the leaders wanted to stone him in order to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
The danger, the risk of death there was worth it for raising Lazarus, for glorifying his father, for revealing his own glory, eliciting the faith of his own disciples, and maybe even saving some of the Jews that had been his enemies. It was worth it to go back. Love did that. He did what he did for Lazarus, delay and all, out of love for his friends. And this very act of putting himself in harm's way for Lazarus led to putting himself in harm's way for us in a far greater way. Jesus put himself in harm's way for us when he put himself between us and the righteous wrath of God that was directed at us as the just penalty for our own sin and rebellion against God. Yet he did what he did for us also out of love for his friends. Again, New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln remembers that just four chapters ahead, chapter 15, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what Jesus did here in returning to Judea to raise Lazarus in front of a crowd of Jews from Jerusalem. He laid down his life to raise Lazarus for the life of his friends. Raising Lazarus from the dead was worth it to Jesus because he loved him. The cross was worth it to Jesus, and what he suffered there was not just the agony of a brutalizing death. It was the full weight of all God's judicial wrath against all the sins of all people everywhere who had ever turned from their sins and trust in Christ. That and nothing less is the measure of Christ's love for you, sinner. For you. He did that because he loved you like he loved Lazarus. And that's not the only thing he does because he loves you. He also delays himself because he loves you. Mary and Martha desperately wanted Jesus to arrive sooner than he did. If you had only been here, they both say to his face separately. That is no doubt a measure of faith. If you had only been here, he would never have died. They really did believe that if Jesus had shown up earlier, he could have and would have healed Lazarus. They thought they knew when it would be best for Jesus to arrive. You sympathize with them, don't you? Three days! Would it have killed you to come here three days earlier? They told him as much. But that was only because they did not know what his love planned to do for them. His love did plan to die for them. He had planned to overcome death for them. They did not know. They could not know the reason for the delay. He wanted to show them something about his character, his power, his authority, his glory, his all-sufficiency, his enoughness for them, even when their Lazarus was taken from them. 
He wanted to show them something more than a mere healing could reveal. You see that? To show up when the sisters wanted him to show up, when they thought he should have showed up, would have been to steal his own thunder in their lives. And Christian, surely you see yourself in Mary and Martha. You want him to fix it now. You wanted him to fix it yesterday, two days ago, three days ago, four days ago. Heal it now. Overcome it now. Make it go away now. There is no conceivable reason for Jesus to delay his mercies to you from your own perspective. Why is he not here? Why didn't he do it? And yet the stronger the enemy, the greater the victory. Christian, whose life, whose glory do you really want in your life anyway? You want your glory and your ease? Or do you want Jesus' glory in your life? If you want Jesus' glory in your life, he's going to let things go. Longer than you want them to in order to prove himself victorious over an enemy you didn't think he could or would overcome for you. You think you can't get along without your Lazarus. You think he can't overcome the pain and sorrow and loss of your Lazarus. Oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. That's why this is here. He can do that for you. I don't know what it is, but he can do it. There's something better than what you lost. That Jesus wants to reveal about himself to you that you would only know about him if you lost it. I can't do without Lazarus. I don't want to lose him. I don't, I don't want to live without him. I don't want to go on without him. I don't see a life without that, whatever that is. And Jesus says, watch this. Jesus can do for us and others, in fact, what we don't know or even dare to ask. Martha said in verse 22, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's an ask. That's an ask of something she doesn't know to ask for. It's kind of like what Jesus' mother said to the waiter at the wedding in Cana. Whatever he says to you, do it. I don't know what he's going to do, but whatever he tells you, do it. After Jesus had just told her, woman, my time hasn't yet come. Whatever he tells you, do it. Same here. Whatever you ask, and I don't even know what that might be. I know that God will give it to you. Christian, it's okay to pray like that. You should pray like that. I've prayed like that before. Father, I don't even know what to ask, but would you just do the thing that I don't know or dare to ask for? I'm not even sure how to pray, but Jesus, I trust that what you ask, God will give, and it will be good, and it will be better than what I know to ask, and it will be better than what you let me lose. And he prompts our faith 
in the face of impossibility. Martha believes God will do anything Jesus asks, and yet when she confesses that faith, Jesus prompts her for even more. Your brother will rise again. Oh, you believe that God will give me what I ask? Your brother's going to rise. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> and she takes that to mean on the last day, but then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, now here with you, for you, for whoever believes in me. So now the question is not just, what do you believe I can or will do for you in this situation? The issue is deeper. Who do you think I am? In myself, with you, for you. For Jesus, this is not just about believing I can. This is about believing I am. And it is about believing that in the face of human, earthly, thisworldly impossibility. Whoever believes in me will live eternally even if he has already died physically. And whoever lives physically now will never die spiritually. This is what Jesus wants you to believe about him for yourself and others who you think are too far gone for him to save. Hmm? Your dad, your mom, your daughter, your son, your co-worker. Four days dead. Four days dead. Man, there's no hope for her. No hope for him. I don't know what they're doing. They will not listen. Stubborn as an ox. Deaf Deaf as a doornail to the gospel. Yeah. Right. Pray for that one. God can save her. God can save him. He raised Lazarus from the dead, didn't he? Four days dead. Who in your life do you view as four days dead to the gospel? Pray for them. Believe Jesus can do it. Believe he can save them. He asked Martha and he asked you today, do you believe this? That's the question of the whole gospel of John. Do you believe this? Martha has believed it. She put it in the perfect tense. I have believed. Settled. I have believed. Friend, have you believed these things? And does your life bear it out? Jesus cares about our sorrows and enters them with us. Dear Christian, Jesus cares about it when your loved ones die. Jesus cares about that. Especially when they loved Jesus and when he counted them as his friends in the gospel. When Jesus sees Mary and the Jews weeping, he is deeply moved. He is agitated in his spirit at the reality and prospect of death, both for us and at that moment for himself on your behalf. He weeps with her at Lazarus' tomb, and still today he is the great high priest who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses and in all of our hopelessness about the situation there. We lost our Lazarus, and we don't know what to do, and we're afraid, and we, we don't even know what to dare to ask God about it, to do about it. And he weeps with those who weep over their lost loved ones, especially those in Christ. You lose a father or a mother, 
Jesus weeps with you. You lost a spouse. Jesus weeps with you. You lost a son or a daughter. Jesus weeps with you. He knows. He cares. Death elicits all of Jesus' indignation and compassion with you. You are angry at the unfairness and sorrow that they were cut down too early. Yeah, he's angry too. And he's sad. He enters into your sorrows with you because he loves you. Jesus said in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I don't know of a more tender line in all of Scripture than that. Our friend Lazarus. He wept at Lazarus' death as a personal loss to himself just as much as he did in sympathy with Mary. And yet for all the loved ones in Christ whom we have lost, he will soon say of them, as he said of Lazarus long ago, I go to awaken him. Jesus will raise all of our dead loved ones in Christ. He will awaken them and he will awaken you too, Christian. J.C. Ryle said, The voice that called Lazarus forth will one day pierce our tombs and bid soul and body come together. And that is why we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That is why we smile through our tears. We are those for whom Jesus mingles in the gladness of the gospel with all of our grief. He tempers the bitterness of death. with the sweet prospect of resurrection. My favorite hymns. Sands of time are sinking. Won't read it all, but just one line from it. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and always dews of sorrow were lustered. With his love. With his love. With his weeping with you. And for you. Unbelief, though, criticizes Jesus for delays that serve his glory. Unbelief criticizes Jesus for these kind of delays that serve his glory. Some skeptics in verse 37 criticize Jesus for his apparent inaction with a question assuming that they know the answer to. Surely this one who opened the blind man's eyes could have kept this man alive. What was he doing over there anyway? Of course, that is ironic from verse 25 where Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. He knows. Yet the skeptics say it as if they found a chink in Jesus' armor. Surely if the healing of the blind man were real, then Jesus could have healed Lazarus too. Maybe the blind man was a fluke or a trick. Or maybe they think they found some sort of inconsistency in Jesus' willingness or ability to heal. 
At the very least, they questioned Jesus' judgment. If Jesus could have healed Lazarus, then why in the world didn't he? And they're, they're the ones who are indignant now. If Jesus is indignant at death, the Jews are critical and indignant at Jesus. If you could, then why didn't you? And we certainly hear similar criticisms of Jesus today, do we not? Unbelieving criticism. Surely if Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, then he could and would do something about all the evil still in the world. Either he is not good or he is not God. Have a care, friend, with that kind of logic. Jesus delays for his suffering people now, just as he did then, not because he does not love, but precisely because he does. He delays to test and prompt our faith. He delays to offer space for unbelievers to repent of their sin and unbelief. He delays to prove that he can beat evil even at full strength, and he can turn it to good as only God is able to do. Jesus' timing did not meet the expectations of his critics in John 11. And his timing does not meet the expectations of his critics still today. And yet, even when he raised Lazarus from the dead, we will see next week that his critics still were not satisfied. For now, Jesus' love does not exempt us from the sorrow of death, but it will redeem us from the sorrow of death. Jesus counted Lazarus and his sisters as friends, He loved them, yet Lazarus still died, and his sisters still cried. Being a Christian does not mean you don't have a sorrow or sickness or pain in this life. Don't listen to preachers who tell you otherwise. There is still a soft prosperity preacher whispering in your heart. You don't have to turn the TV on. Your heart's whispering that gospel to you. If God loved me so much, then why did he let it happen? Yeah. Right, it's in your heart. You don't need to turn the TV on to hear that. Your flesh preaches it to you. That's why it's so popular on TV. But it is a lie. That if you were only living well enough, you would not suffer as you do. Yeah, that's a, that's a total lie. Real Christians, loved by Jesus, still suffer the sorrows of this life. Miscarriages, wayward children, difficult marriages, recurring illness, financial hardships, loneliness, lost loved ones, unwelcome singleness, even ministries that fail and flounder. Jesus' love does not exempt us from any of that. In fact, he often brings those things into our lives to draw us out into deeper and greater reliance on him. He will use these things to point out our sins and our self-reliances and to confess our sins and to strengthen our weaknesses. But for all of that, Jesus will be faithful to redeem us from all sorrow and death. He will persevere us into his heavenly kingdom where he will dwell with us and we will be his people And God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. 
It is the death and resurrection of Jesus, ironically set in motion by Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that will make that reality of Revelation 21 a final reality for all who turn from their sin and self-reliance to believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection to make it so. And so we should take Jesus at his word of promise. Verse 39, Martha objected to removing the stone because of the stink. Jesus replies to her in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you? Hey, look at me, Martha. (laughs) What did I tell you before? Remember what I said. I'm not going back on that. You remember my gospel. You remember my promise. I know it stinks in there. You don't have to tell me it stinks. I know. Take away the stone. Take it away. Jesus never overpromises, and he promises a great deal. So you should take him at his word. Because his word brings the dead to life. Jesus calling Lazarus to life is a picture of his sovereign power and effectual calling. When Jesus calls someone to new life in himself, they come to life by the power of his word. The raising of Lazarus is an individual picture of Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. God called his dead people to life through Ezekiel's preaching, and they rose up to become a great army for the Lord. And here Jesus calls Lazarus to life, and up comes Lazarus from the tomb. Jesus didn't say, hey, Lazarus, would you like to come out? Jesus didn't invite him to come out. He commanded him. And he obeyed. Church, this is what it looks like for God to call and convert sinners among us, around us. This is our great hope for what we want to see Jesus do among us. It is not our word, but God's word that people dead in their sins need to hear. And it is not our voice, but the voice of God in Christ that alone has power to wake them from their sleep, in their deadness, to the things of God and the gospel. Bringing sinners to life in Christ is God's work. Even Jesus himself prayed in thanks to the Father before he called Lazarus to life. And how could we think that we do not need to pray in order for sinners to be brought to new life through the ministry of this church? We must pray and believe for sinners to be saved among us. Sinners cannot be saved through a prayerless ministry of a prayerless church. It is the word and voice of the good shepherd that they must hear in and through the preaching of the gospel. Why did Jesus pray? Because he wanted those around him to know that God the Father had sent him to do just such things. He wanted God to get the glory for Lazarus being raised from the dead. He wanted them not just to glorify him as the Messiah in himself, but to honor his Father as the one who sent him to do such powerful things. And when we pray, we see God do things that he will only do as a result of our asking him so that we give him alone the glory for doing them in response to our request. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him will live eternally even if he dies physically and the one who lives and believes in Jesus will never ever suffer the second death in hell. If you believe, if you take Jesus at his word of promise, you will see the glory of God. And Jesus asks you now the same question 
he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the comfort of the resurrection. We praise you for the power of the resurrection. And we ask you, make it all the more powerful in our own lives as a comfort, as a stabilizing presence for our sorrows, our fears, our losses, our cares. And we ask, would you, by your power and grace, raise unbelievers in our homes and neighborhoods and offices, raise them from the dead to give them new life in Christ, give them ears to hear and eyes to see, and give us boldness to proclaim the word of the gospel to them that they might hear and come out of their tombs raised to new and everlasting life that they will never lose. For Jesus' sake, amen.